Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and we discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture, and we talk about it here every week. You know, I'm always excited to bring you great guests, and today is a great guest. And, and I'm telling you, we're talking about something that's as pertinent to you. If this, if this is one of those where you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't know, Damien. Sometimes you get out in the weeds over here and you're talking about like, you know, asparagus. No, 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 folks. This one is all about the Farm Bill. Today we're talking about Farm Bill 2018. And as it is now uh, law, what it's going to do for you. All things Farm Bill, or at least as much as we can cover in one podcast. Uh, agriculture and food production is controlled, as you well know, in large part by the federal government. This is done via the Farm Bill. They come out about every five years. So we're going to talk about what's new in this one, what it means for you, and uh, what it means for the entire business of agriculture. So my guest is John Newton. He's the chief economist at American Farm Bureau. That's right. John Newton is a PhD. He got his PhD from Ohio State University. His undergraduate is from University of Louisville. He's a Kentuckian, became an Ohioan, worked in uh, the United States Department of Agriculture for like 10 or 15 years, was briefly with uh, uh, the dairy industry as their economist, and he joined the Farm Bureau. John Newton, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Hey, thanks for having me on. Excited to, to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Uh, you are a mucky muck. I mean, you're out there in Washington, D.C., so, I mean, you're as close to the, the heartbeat of this whole thing as we can, as we can possibly get. Uh, is there anything I missed when I was talking about your background? No, I, th- I think you covered it. I'm a mucky muck in Washington, D.C., but from Louisville, Kentucky. I still got a little bit of that, that twang in my voice, so my people around Washington are always curious where exactly I come from. Oh, trust me, we already noticed. Everybody listening to the show says, wait a minute, what kind of a mucky muck sounds like he's from the South? And no, that's fine, we got that. Okay. Pants on one leg at a time. Okay, so John Newton is there with the American Farm Bureau Federation. He delivers speeches, but he also is very active on social media, and you'll be able to keep up with him. You can find him, I'm sure, just by looking up John Newton. I found him uh, through some of those connections, and he put stuff out there about the Farm Bill. I looked at a lot of it, and I thought, this is the guy we got to have in, because I myself was getting folks looking me up, saying, Damien, can you do a podcast about the Farm Bill? There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of questions, but there always is. Let's get right into it. Everybody listening to this podcast in some capacity works in the business of agriculture. What is the farm bill? What does it, what does it do? Why should they care? Before we get into the finer points of this one, a little history on the farm bill, if you will. Well, yeah, certainly. I think the farm bill is a, a five-year uh, piece of legislation that authorizes uh, many of the agricultural programs, the risk management programs, the conservation programs uh, that many of your listeners are very familiar with. Uh, What some people don't also know is that the Farm Bill authorizes nutrition programs. Uh, So over a 10-year period, the Farm Bill is projected to uh, spend just less than a trillion dollars, and about 80% of that is in the nutrition programs, your supplemental nutrition, your food stamps, uh, those programs. So the Farm Bill joins uh, the nutrition programs and the farm safety net programs, and they've been joined together since 1973. Uh, We've had those two pieces uh, combined in the farm bill. 
Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the nutrition. Before we get into that, because most folks listening to this show at least understand that the that they are maligned because there's this thought that, oh, I'm giving a trillion dollars over 10 years to agriculture. And a lot of folks listening to this show realize that, no, wait a minute, you're giving it to folks that are getting free lunches at school and all that. So before we get into the whole nutrition program and the conjoining of USDA with the SNAP and free lunches, what else does the farm bill do that maybe isn't commonly mentioned? You, you know, there's stuff when you put out your charts that I'm sure some folks that probably said, oh, I didn't know that was part of the farm bill. Go ahead. Well, I think, you know, in this particular farm bill, for example, uh, there's a lot of things that folks maybe didn't know that was part of the farm bill. When you think about uh, trade promotion programs or market access and development programs, uh, those are included in the farm bill and where you typically see those dollars flowing is into some of the checkoff organizations that are promoting uh, U.S. produced agricultural products around the world, or some of those organizations going into foreign countries uh, and working with, with companies or governments in those countries to increase uh, our market access there. That's included in the Farm Bill. I think one of the other ones that's in this Farm Bill that, that we worked real hard to get in there uh, was a, an animal disease preparedness and response program. So. Uh, effectively, what that does, it creates a foot and mouth disease vaccine bank. Uh, we're going to fund it at about $30 million a year, so $150 million over five years will go uh, to, to develop the vaccines that we need in the event of an FMD uh, outbreak. So there's all sorts of little programs in the Farm Bill a lot of folks didn't know about. There's a, a mental health uh, funding in the Farm Bill that provides about $50 million uh, to help folks deal with uh, the current downturn in the farm economy by providing access to some of those critical mental health services. So the Farm Bill includes a number of things beyond what people see as those big ticket items like crop insurance, commodity programs, and conservation programs. Well, first off, I very, very much appreciate you giving those uh, those other categories. So if you're listening to this podcast, you you know, I always point this out. It might be the guy that sells machinery in western Kansas. It might be the lady that's in the uh, crop uh, genetics business for one of the big seed companies. It might be a farmer, might be a farm her. There's a lot of folks in agriculture that are listening to this podcast. And I want you, dear listeners, to even jot this down so you don't forget that first off, nobody, even the critics of the, of the farm legislation, because they always look at it out here in suburbia and say things like, well, why am I paying for that? Well, conservation is always one that I take to because I own uh, farmland, and I have about 16 acres that are in the CRP program. And I always point out, I know it's trendy or it's joking to say, hey, we're paying you to not farm that land. I say, no, it's actually a lease with the federal government, but I have to adhere to their practices. They tell me to put in prairie grass, and they say every three years you have to burn it, and then over here on this tree planting, you have to do this, or you on this uh, windbreak, you must do that there are certain practices that I have to adhere to as part of my lease. So I always point that out, that what the benefit to the taxpayer is, is uh, cleaner water, uh, wildlife, wind protection. And they say, well, why is it my job to do that on your land? I say, well, then conversely, why is it my job to protect your water? Why is it my job to worry about whether the wind comes whipping through here and you just get pelted with uh, uh, you know, whatever debris is blowing around? So I always go to the conservation direction, but you brought up, John, a couple of other wonderful uh, programs that are within the USDA. Even though I'm a conservative and I don't like paying taxes, I can get behind the animal disease prevention part of that. 
I did an event, I spoke to the American Veterinary Medical Association several years ago, and they told me that in the United States of America, 330 million people, there are only 8,000 veterinarians that are trained and work with on a daily basis meat animals. If we had a major animal disease outbreak, we're going to rely on 8,000 men and women to protect the meat supply for the other 329 million of us. So what you're talking about, that's a pretty important thing. It certainly is. And it's not only the 320 million Americans, it's, it's all our export markets that also uh, depend on our products. So 94, 95% of the world uh, lives outside of the United States. We end up with an FMD outbreak here. Uh, we're effectively locked out of those markets and, and can no longer supply those. Uh, that's why it's so critical to have that uh, responsiveness in the event of an outbreak. Yeah, now, now all of a sudden, we not only are the, the gold standard of meat, you know, I go and do a speech at the pork producers and the meat export federations, and they talk a lot about how American meat is just so highly sought after because it's just a stamp of approval for quality. Now we also are protecting that. So this is a smart insurance policy in that regard. You also mentioned mental health. On this very podcast uh, last spring, I did a, an episode uh, about the mental health issue. And why should it be farm bill funding for that? Because we have uh, people that are in mental health crisis and they're also in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's not like where I live in the suburbs of Phoenix during the winter or where you are in Washington, DC, where there's a therapist and a psychologist on every corner uh, or even a psychiatrist or the mental health uh, network that we need. There's people that really need this. So I was glad to hear that you said that we're putting some money toward that. Yeah, we certainly are. I think when you think, you know, about what's happening in, in farm country in rural America, uh, we're in the middle of a five-year downturn in the farm economy. We've seen net farm income decline by uh, nearly 50% from where it was in 2013. Uh, and quite frankly, it's, it's not an easy subject to mention, but, but folks are taking their own lives uh, right now with where we think about where farm income is. Uh, and so to have access to the kind of mental health tools they need uh, it's really important for a lot of folks to get through this downturn in the farm economy. I don't want to get too far off the reservation here, John, because we are talking, by the way, to John Newton, Chief Economist at the American Farm Bureau Federation. If you happen to just go and grab a coffee and you forgot what was going on here on the Business of Agriculture podcast, and we are covering all things Farm Bill, but I will point out there's another component to that because a guy on Twitter yesterday said, hey, what do you get asked about from non-farm people as a farm person? And one of them would be, of course, Monsanto, 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 GMOs, 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 GMOs. And I always give them a straight scoop on that. And I give them a very pro-agriculture scoop on that. And I also remind them that it's their choice, but they should make their choice not on emotion, on, on facts. One other thing I've been asked about in the last year, because there's been several articles about the mental health situation and suicide rates. Some of it was overstated uh, on, on our suicide rate. And they said, is it just that bad? Are these people all losing their family farms? I said, no, no, th that part's overstated. Uh, we don't have a mass exodus of everybody is, you know, losing their farm. It's not the grapes of wrath. But I would say this, there's another component to it. I've been an ag person my whole life. I've been around ag people my whole life. There's a rugged individualism about these people. There is a, I can take, I can, I can take care of myself. I can take care of my family. Uh, I've, I've raised calves. I know when the effort is futile. I know that uh, this calf is sick and I know how to put it down. I, and unfortunately, I think that so many people in ag look at that themselves like that 
like that sick calf. Like I, I'm sick. I'm not doing well. I'm depressed. I don't ask, I don't ask for help. I'm a rugged individualist. And uh, that's the sad part that you got uh, going on with the mental health crisis as I see it. Yeah, hopefully, you know, we're doing everything we can here in Washington, DC. I know we're real far away from farm country, but, but uh, our members, our grassroots members out there and our state farm bureaus are, are doing everything we can to cut, to work, to turn around the farm economy, to get access to those export markets and getting the farm bill done. The president's going to sign it tomorrow as a step in the right direction. Fantastic. So John Newton, let's talk farm bill. I just had to make that point because I know there's a lot of people in, in the, the business that listen to this and they're saying, you know, Damien, is it really as bad as I, I just want to give a little perspective on the, on the suicide and the mental health part of it about the farm bill. Uh, I'm a fan of history. I'm a student of history. And uh, the first legislation was the agricultural adjustment act passed in 1933. It was during FDRs during the great depression. And the idea was we were going to bring prices for farm commodity production back up to some healthy level. Uh, by my reading, it's, uh, it turns out during World War I, which if you're not a fan of history, I'll just go ahead and give you a little history. 1914 to 1918, we were sort of the producer toward 1916 and 17 before we actually joined. We didn't get in until 1917. We were only in for a little over a year in World War I. But we ramped up production because Europe could not make food. And all of a sudden, we had a boom time. If you drove around the countryside and you had a critical eye, you might see a lot of improvements. Barns that were built in the teens and early 20s. Uh, farm improvements because there was a boom going on in agriculture in places like Iowa and Indiana, where I'm from, because of all the money being made selling products to Europe where they couldn't grow food because they were trench warfare. Then the 20s, Europe gets back to where they can make food. And our population isn't growing enough to support all this production because we ramped up production. We got, it's what agriculture always does. We ramp up production and now things are in the crapper. It's the twenties and things are just falling apart. While the rest of the U S economy roared of the roaring twenties, agriculture was in the crapper because remember this industry as John and I can tell you, he better than I, because I don't have a PhD and he does. <laughs> what did we learn in agricultural economics 101? The ag economy tends to be very counter-cyclical to the general economy. So there it is. It's the 1920s. Things are bad in agriculture. 1933, FDR says, Franklin Delano Roosevelt says, we got to do something. Agricultural Adjustment Act. Let's start taking some of this production off the table so we can therefore raise prices of the production we do have. From there to today, you're a fan of all this stuff too. Tell me about the farm bill through from then to now. Well, I think you're exactly right. We went through a long period of, of trying to uh, adjust inventory le levels, whether that's a payment in kind program uh, to take, take land out of production or, or supply management style programs. Uh, we went through that whole period. And I think farm income was relatively stable uh, throughout that whole period. And you get all the way up to 1996, uh, when we passed the 1996 Farm Bill, that was the Freedom to Farm Bill. And that was our first foray in the decoupling Farm Bill support from what growers were actually planting around the country. And that allowed farmers and ranchers to respond to market signals. Uh, we had the Asian economies really start to, to ramp up. And soon after we did that, soon after that planting flexibility, we had a sharp downturn uh, in the farm economy. And I think what we saw at that point in time, more and more, uh, ad hoc disaster payments went out to growers. 
uh, things start to stabilize again. Uh, we, we began the uh, conservation reserve program back in the 80s. That was one thing that we started to help uh, try to control the supply of, of agricultural products and, and supply of cropland. Uh, but we get all the way to today, and I think one of the things that happened uh, after that Asian financial crisis, we started to do direct payments to farmers. Uh, those direct payments have morphed now into more need-based uh, support to farmers in the form of uh, revenue protection programs or price-based safety nets. But a lot of that evolution all starts in the 80s and 90s and, and getting folks now off of those direct payments that they, that they received in the late 90s. And, and is that going to happen? Well, that's what we saw in the 2014 Farm Bill. We got rid of the direct payment programs. Uh, prior to that, you used to get a, you know, a deficiency payment uh, you know, per bushel on, on your base acres. And now uh, growers have to select whether they want a price or revenue, a safety net. And it's not guaranteed to make any payments to farmers uh, we got rid of all those direct payments in that last farm bill. So, By, by the way, John, uh, since I'm related to uh, farm people and I do business with farm people and I rent my land to farm people and uh, one of my brothers is a USDA uh, county executive director, I sometimes when they make cracks about, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't get up until 8.30 today. I said, yeah, well, I also got home from the airport at midnight last night, but that's okay. Uh, well, you're, you know, that's not hard. You just go around and talk for a living. I'm out here planting food. And I say, hey, tell me again about that LDP. What are you talking about? I said, doesn't that stand for loan deficiency payment? Yeah. I said, well, when do you pay that loan back? What do you mean? <laughs> so, one of my favorite things that uh, for years, uh, farm folks got the loan deficiency payment through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it wasn't a loan at all. It was a payment. <laughs> so <laughs> a loan is something you get, unless it comes from your dad, and he uh, is very forgiving, a loan is something you are supposed to pay back. We <laughs> saw loan deficiency payment, we saw direct payments, and then we replaced that with ARC, and what the heck is the other one? PLC. And that's the one they did some tweaking to this time. Tell me about that. So they did, a, they did a couple tweaks. And I think one of the things, just for perspective, we didn't have a whole lot of money going into this farm bill. So we knew that the last farm bill, 2014, was uh, revolutionary and that we got rid of those direct payment programs uh, for more need-based assistance. Uh, we knew this bill would be evolutionary and that we'd make some tweaks to the ARC and the PLC program, try to make them function a little bit better. Uh, what they did for PLC specifically is they created uh, floating support prices. Um, what that does, it allows the support price or reference price under PLC to move up in the event of higher prices through the marketing year. And that really targets what, you know, when you think about what soybean prices or what corn prices have done uh, in recent years, the support price under PLC uh, was pretty low for soybeans at, at $5 and uh, 50 cents per bushel. I'm sorry, that was the marketing loan rate at $8.40 per bushel. So the, the floating PLC can lift the support provided uh, for a lot of these field crops uh, in the event of a price decline. Got it. Uh, we, we got a little bit uh, away from the other discussion about the history part of this. The history really, and I, I think that uh, a lot of folks lose sight of this, in one of my first agricultural economics classes at Purdue University, it was explained to me that the policy of the United States government really has always been cheap and plentiful food for the masses. And I remember sitting there as a 19-year-old college kid, I said, but cheap, how do you call it cheap when it's taxpayers that sometimes are propping up the farm sector? 
And I think we can admit that that's happened. And I know that people say, oh, Damon, I'm not wise Apple. I'm just being honest. We've always had this. I mean, I, I saw pick the payment in kind program. I saw set aside. I've seen all these things, dairy buyouts. And I said, so is it really cheap when you look at the actual cost? And then the discussion became, well, the people that are going to charge the Bastille with their pitchforks are not the people that are paying the taxes. So really, there is a policy that if we have 40 million people on food stamps, which we do in the United States of America, those 40 million people are at the bottom of the economic rung. And if the other people above them are paying for the supply, the other part of it is it does bring a great deal of economic and international independence. So am I right? Has that always been the policy? And is that still why we have such support for the nutrition program? Or is it more convoluted than that? Well, I think that's, that's an interesting perspective. You know, when you think about the 40 million people that receive nutrition assistance, uh, you think about less than 1% of the U.S. population grows the food in this country. Um, you know, I, whether it's the, the goal of the government to try to provide uh, cheap and affordable food, uh, that might be debatable. I think one of the things that, that we're certain that the goal is, is, uh, you know, when you think about crop insurance and the assistance they provide there, uh, that gives the risk management certainty that, that folks need. It takes us out of the business of making ad hoc disaster payments. So farmers can get the crop insurance. They can work with their lender. They know that if there's a crop loss, they've got some uh, insurance there. They don't have to depend on the government uh, to come in and, and help in the event of some sort of natural disaster. So I think, you know, that's the emphasis behind crop insurance is that the grower has the skin in the game and we're not sitting here responding to every single drought uh, that occurs across the country coming around and bailing folks out. The crop insurance part is absolutely dead on, John. I, I, I agree with that. When I had my brother on, who's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, his statement was uh, there's a responsibility on the part of the United States Department of Agriculture, and it has been for over a century. We will at least keep the farm sector alive and productive. Uh, now, whether we can keep them profitable, that's more going to depend on, on their ability. But And why is that? Well, because we got 329 million people here that need fed. And, and so I guess that's, that's where we are on this thing. So we talked about nutrition and the fact that it's conjoined. In the 1970s, the food stamp and supplemental nutrition and uh, WIC and free lunches and free breakfast at schools got thrown in with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. About four to seven years ago, I think it was, there was a push to separate the two. Will the two ever be separated? You know, we certainly don't, don't want to see that happen at Farm Bureau. One of the reasons why you have the nutrition title tied to the Farm Bill uh, really is a, is a function of getting the Farm Bill through the House of Representatives. In order to get the support you need from urban America, urban portions of the country, uh, that you tie the nutrition assistance programs there. And I always, when I travel around the country and I'm talking to farmers, I say, why in the world would a representative from New York City support crop insurance? Or why would somebody from urban Chicago support crop insurance? Uh, and there's very little interest to do so, but tying it to the nutrition programs, there's a win for rural America and there's a win for urban America uh, when you join those two programs. So we'll certainly work to keep them together, uh, but, but no one can predict the future. I'd like to see them separated as an agriculturist, and I've got a different uh, take on it. I can very plainly tell the representative from Chicago or the representative from the Bay Area or New York, and I can say, here's why you're going to support crop insurance. First off, it's only 8.9% of the entire farm bill. And secondly, it is a absolute proof that this is a safety net program that to keep this, this uh, 
what is it really about uh, a million actual farmers? Yeah, you can say there's 3.2 million farmers, but really about a million of them or less that actually are really producing the lion's share of the nutrition. If you don't want to let those people go bankrupt and go out of business, you're going to support crop insurance. But also I've, I've heard the thing before that there's no way we'll get the support for one without the other. So I, it's my personal opinion. They'll never be separated because of what you already said. Speaking of taxpayer funding, there are some gross inaccuracies out there, John. And <laughs> I pointed it out on my social media feed. If you didn't see it, dear listener, go and look it up. It was a National Review article written by two people that are supposedly uh, business-minded conservative uh, authors. And it went on and on and on about who needs support versus these big dairy farms. It was really written from such a DC insider perspective. It dawned on me that these people will never understand. First off, who are you to dictate needs? Secondly, describe small. I always say that. Well, define small. Define big. Uh, they can't. And they use the usual words like industrial agriculture. And then they even had a point in there that somehow farmers' relatives, cousins and aunts and nephews, can all get $125,000 subsidies even if they don't live or work on the farm. And I thought, well, who the hell told these people that happens? I don't know anybody that gets $125,000 just handed to them because they're related to a farmer. But there are, <laughs> with, 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 every, with every farm bill, there is some sort of big squawk from suburbia and it's fueled by these inaccuracies. It really bothered me that, uh, that this article was out there. So what else inaccurate uh, the portrayals do you see? Well, that, that one has to be one of the most uh, inaccurate portrayals of agriculture. And we fought real hard against that in the Farm Bill. One of the things I think folks don't understand is that farming is very complicated and different management structures across the country. And so you can have non-lineal relationships on the farm, uh, you know, cousins farming together on the land that used to be, uh, you know, grandfathers or something like that. And so the Farm Bill allows anybody that's contributing uh, to the management share, to the operational of the farm, uh, to be eligible to receive uh, those program payments from the ARC and the PLC. Uh, but in order to get those, in order to get, say, you know, two family members both uh, receiving $125,000, you have to have, you know, a revenue decline on, on that particular operation. Uh, it has to be a large enough operation to scale to justify uh, those magnitudes of payments. So they leave a lot of the points that are, I guess, so important to understand how farm programs work uh, out, of the, out of the article when, when they put those things together. But that's one of the biggest ones. The other one is that, that farmers are better off, they have higher average household uh, income than the, rest of, uh, than the rest of America. And I think what they, what they fail to point out when they, when they talk about that kind of stuff is that a lot of farmers uh, have off-farm jobs. Uh, take yourself, for example. Uh, so, some of those farmers do have higher average uh, household income. A lot of that could be due to their off-farm sources of income. Uh, but on average, over the last decade and a half, 20 years, uh, the average and median returns to farming have been negative uh, for a lot of farmers. So the, re the return uh, isn't there in farming for a lot of folks. Um, and so I think those are two of the biggest misnomers we see uh, and deal with every time we have to do a farm bill. All right, before we get to your closing thoughts, I put us on social media last night and again this morning about hemp. Uh, dear listeners, in case you didn't know, one of the small components of this year's farm bill, legalization of hemp. 
And I make jokes about hemp, but you must understand there's a difference between marijuana that one might smoke that has THC in it and hemp, which is used for fiber production. My favorite summer shoes are called Sanooks. They don't sponsor my podcast, but I do recommend them. Sanooks, oh, they're amazing. And my favorite ones are made of hemp, soft uh, fabric with a rubber sole. They're amazing. We don't grow hardly any hemp. This article I just read yesterday said 25,000 acres in the whole United States of America, uh, but we're going to ramp up production potentially because hemp oil and hemp fiber might have uh, a big opportunity. So any other stuff like that, John, in this farm bill, any other little goodies that we don't know about? You know, I think that's, that's a goodie that actually helped get the bill on the Senate floor. I'm from Kentucky. I know that was something that uh, Senator McConnell really wanted to see in the farm bill. Uh, I think there was one point in time when, when he pulled uh, Senator Roberts aside and said, where's my farm bill on the Senate floor? Because he wanted to get that hemp provision passed. Uh, there's a lot of people excited about uh, that in the farm bill, the opportunities in hemp and in the oil. Uh, certainly will be something that, that we're going to continue to monitor uh, going forward. There's a lot of value in the oil. Uh, but certainly uh, what we're going to do with all that rope is, is uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, it might be more fiber than we need, but one must also point out, as I do on this very podcast, uh, it's, it's not bad to keep thinking about something uh, that's a little bit of an oddball product that we can produce in agriculture that has a use that we – it wasn't until the 1940s that soybeans came to America at any appreciable level of quantity. Now look at – we're talking nonstop soybeans as the China thing rages because – and that's only been 70 years that we've really been in soybean production. Quinoa, kale, uh, canola, which got its name because they took Canada and oil and put them together. It used to be called a rape seed. Can't sell a product named rape. So they made canola. <laughs> that's really from the 1970s and 80s. Uh, University of Saskatchewan and I think it was University of Alberta, two, co two colleges out in Western Canada. So I'm all for it. If the hemp oil has a potential, all right, final thoughts. John Stewart's my guest. He's been a great one. I hope he comes back and talks to me on the business of agriculture. He's the chief economist of the American Farm Bureau. Mr. I'm sorry, professor. That's not right. You're not a professor. You work for a living. John Newton, how do these people contact you? How do they follow you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at NEW10 uh, underscore Ag Econ. That's New 10 Ag Econ. Uh, you can find me at my Farm Bureau uh, home if you email jnewton at fb.org. Uh, so any of those two methods to reach You're out. also on LinkedIn. I connected with you on LinkedIn if anybody wants to find you there. I am on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I don't have a cool handle on LinkedIn, so I don't even know how to explain that. I, I'll, tell, I'll explain it. Look up John Newton Farm Bureau and you'll find him. <laughs> Closing thoughts. Go. What else do you want to leave our listeners with? You've been a great guest. I'm glad you came on. You're the most fun Ohio State PhD I've ever talked to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, I really appreciate the opportunity to join. This, this has been a, a pretty tremendous year uh, in agriculture. You know, the trade uh, stuff notwithstanding, you know, the, the accomplishments that we did get a farm bill done. This is the first time we've got a farm bill done uh, really on time since 1990. So to get that done this year, very quick pace, uh, to see the progress that we made on the waters of the U.S., uh, you know, our folks are really, really pleased to get clear rules and, and clean water. So those are some big wins, and we look forward to trying to get some wins here on trade, restoring those markets. And I think the next big challenge ahead of us is unfortunately going to be one of the most difficult, and that's dealing with, with comprehensive immigration reform. I think a lot of folks don't understand how important labor is and how much we depend 
on a reliable workforce. Well, you, you go to the places I go, see uh, dairy production, you go and see meat processing, you see uh, poultry production, and then you see uh, specialty crop production. You'll understand why we need something in the way of a guest worker program to make that, uh, that part of agriculture continue to thrive. I agree with you. That's your next thing you're working on. John Newton's been my guest. We talked about all things Farm Bill, and I'm guessing we'll have to have him on again just because he's a good guy to talk to about these goings on in Washington, D.C. Until then, thanks a lot for joining me, Mr. John Newton. Thank you. Merry and Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you. And thanks for listening to the Business of Agriculture. Until next time.